So my name is uh, Pastor Tim, and uh, I am not Pastor Evan or Pastor Kyle. Pastor Evan is officiating at an out-of-town wedding this week, and Pastor Kyle was supposed to be preaching at Liberty Main Line today, but I just found out before the service that he's sick. And so someone else uh, is, is preaching uh, in his place. Uh, so um, why don't we just take a moment and just pray for our brothers and sisters at uh, Liberty uh, City Line um, as they deal with this unexpected change. Father, uh, we do pray, first of all, that you would heal Kyle uh, from whatever he has. But uh, Lord, we also ask that you would be uh, merciful to whomever is taking his place uh, at our sister church today. Lord, would you, uh, would you clearly communicate uh, your word through uh, that person? Would you give him uh, not only confidence in your presence with him, but confidence in your word? Lord, I pray that you would relieve him from any anxiety that he might have. Uh, and we just ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, as we continue our study in Judges, we're, we're looking at the story of another judge, and her name is Deborah. And I thought as uh, a, a good way to introduce uh, what the story of Deborah is about, I would read to you uh, this very short piece of modern poetry. Uh, it was written a little over 50 years ago by an American poet named Joe Raposo, and uh, its title is very simply One of These Things. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the others before I finish my song? And of course, this, this is poetry only in the broadest sense of the term. Uh, this, this is actually not uh, legitimate poetry. This is a uh, piece of uh, poetry that was turned into a song, one of these things. And if you are at all familiar with the um, children's show Sesame Street, you will uh, recognize this as one of the songs that they used to sing during one of these little reasoning games that they played. As you can see, Susan up there on the screen, not my Susan, another Susan, um, has a chart with four things on it, and one of them does not belong. And so it was an attempt to help kids really think through critically, well, what, what's different and why is it different? And um, it does introduce one of the main themes of the story of Deborah today. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you were listening closely to uh, the, the text as Steve was reading it, but in one major way, Deborah stands out. She, in a sense, doesn't belong uh, with the other 12 judges named in the book of Judges. And just like in the slide that we just saw, uh, it was a prophetic slide, the difference begins with a W. And so, can you guess what it is? That's like, that's right. Um, unlike all the other judges, Deborah was not a war general. She didn't lead any troops into battle. But maybe that's not what you were thinking. Okay, how about Deborah is the only one uh, among the 13 judges who was a prophet? Or maybe that's not it. Maybe that's still not what you have in mind. How about this? Deborah is the only one of the judges who wisely decided court cases. 
None of the other judges did that. No, Deborah is the only judge who's a wife. But I'm getting warm with that one. Of course, uh, Deborah is the only judge who is a woman. And of course, there are numerous ways in which Deborah stood out among her fellow judges in Israel, and these are, are some of the main ones. She's not what we should have expected in a judge, and the way in which God provided deliverance for his people uh, through her was unexpected as well. And so we're going to look at how God provided that deliverance using three points. The first is an unusual judge. The second is an atypical general. And the third is an unexpected ally. So an unusual judge, an atypical general, an unexpected ally. So first, an unusual judge. And of course, the, the most noticeable difference between Deborah and her fellow uh, 12 judges is that Deborah is a woman. And while we won't get into this discussion in this particular sermon, although God typically raises up men to lead his people, in this case, he raised up a woman. And we aren't told why Deborah was called to be a judge. We only know that she was. And one of the things that I think this teaches us about how God uh, works is that he doesn't always do things in the ways that we would expect. There are three heroes in this account, and two of the three are women. And that's exactly the way that the Lord wanted it to work out. And so let's not presume that the Lord either hasn't in the past or in, uh, won't in the present and the future use women to, to perform rather tremendous acts of service in the church or in his kingdom. Women have the same Holy Spirit that men do, and they are a critical part of the church. We believe that God has called men to be the elders and pastors in his church, but women are also called to be actively involved in teaching and edifying and encouraging and discipling in uh, serving in proclaiming the gospel in many, many ways. And the work to which women are called in the church is no less important than the work to which men are called. And that's all we'll say on that point for right now, uh, except to say that God sometimes works in uh, very uh, unusual ways that don't kind of fit into our categories. But what else makes Deborah unusual is that she had been so differently gifted and called in her ministry gifts than were the other judges. And, and I named some of those differences a moment ago. First, we read in verse 4 that Deborah is a prophet, uh, a, a, a prophetess, a female prophet. And there are just five female prophets mentioned in the Old Testament. And so Deborah is part of a very elite club. We don't know the extent or the breadth of Deborah's prophetic call, but especially considering that Israel was fairly disorganized at the time and had no central leadership um, at all, it was probably somewhat similar to what the 13 British colonies in America were like prior to the Revolutionary War. I assume that Deborah was both a civil leader and a religious leader for her people. We know that she was a civil leader because she was widely consulted by the people of Israel to resolve their various disputes. Uh, we see this in verse 5. And if she was widely consulted on her judgments, we assume that the people of Israel recognized in some way that her gifts of wisdom and judgment were from the Lord, and he was using her to, to build up his people. She also summoned Barak 
in verse 6, to come to her and receive instruction from the Lord, and that Barak came to her and listened to her instructions is a sign that she had authority delegated by the Lord and recognized by the people. And since Israel was more or less a a theocracy at the time, and a theocracy is uh, defined as a system of government in which others ordained by God rule in his name, then Deborah was one of her generation who counseled and proclaimed God's word to his people. And so she was both a a civil leader and a religious leader uh, to Israel. But second, Deborah had a unique relationship to Israel. She says of herself in chapter 5, verse 7, that she arose as a a quote-unquote mother in Israel. And I think what she's getting at here is that everyday life, as it had been in Israel, had come to a standstill because of the oppression of Israel's enemies. We, we see this cycle time and time again with the judges. And this time, the, the enemy that was oppressing Israel for 20 years uh, was Jabin, the, the king of Canaan. And what it means uh, that they were oppressed is that the people of Israel were even afraid to go out on the roads that they were afraid to leave their homes. They were afraid to conduct business as usual uh, because of the threats that the Canaanites presented. But that the Lord raised up Deborah and through her leadership and the accompanying victory over Jabin gave rebirth to the nation meant that in some sense, Deborah was a mother to Israel. She, in a sense, gave it rebirth, which points us forward to the work of Jesus in whom we have rebirth. And a third thing that makes Deborah unusual among all the judges is that she is probably the most distinguished of all of the judges, and that her actions and words consistently pointed toward God. And I realize that we're very early on in our study of judges, but perhaps you're familiar with some of the other judges in the book, and you might think, uh, knowing uh, what what happens with them, that um, some of them just aren't the, you know, the, the kind of people that we would expect to be judges. Some of them don't do things that are necessarily consistent with what being a godly and obedient servant of God looks like. But the combination of Deborah's prophetic words and, and the very God-honoring account of the events of the song, uh, events in the song, rather, of chapter 5, stand out in the book of Judges as a time not only when the Lord delivered his people, but when the people were called to recognize and honor the Lord. She was someone who was constantly pointing people back to God. So what can we learn from her? Well, Deborah was a godly woman who obeyed the word of the Lord. And given what we know of the culture of the ancient Near East, her role as a judge and a leader in the community was very likely countercultural. And she probably had to endure some criticism for others, asking her, why, why are you as a woman stepping up into this position of authority? Who gave you that right? So let me ask you this question this morning. In what ways might the Lord be inviting you to be countercultural in the circumstances in which you find yourself? Whether you're a man or a woman, Where might the Lord be calling you to be obedient to his word and his will, even though others around you might oppose you? Perhaps he's inviting you to stand up for what his word says rather than to give in to what the people around you say and do. 
Or perhaps he's inviting you to pray for the heart of someone who's wounded you deeply. When all you feel like inside is that you want to uh, hate that person. Or perhaps he's even inviting you to believe his promises, even when you're in the midst of hard circumstances and it seems foolish to do that. Well, let's move on from focusing just on Deborah to focusing on um, uh, uh, the second point, uh, an atypical general. And here we look at uh, Barak, who is another person who doesn't do exactly what we think uh, someone should do uh, in this story. Let me go back a little bit and preface this by giving you a, a little bit of a historical look uh, at what uh, someone in a similar position um, encountered. So in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there was a, f- a, a famous uh, female superstar, and she was probably the, the first American female superstar uh, in the culture at that time. Her name was Annie Oakley. And what Annie Oakley was known for was her precise sharpshooting abilities. And here is the description of what she could do from the Encyclopedia Britannica. It says, at 30 paces, at 30 paces, she could split a playing card held edge on. Can you think about that? Like holding a playing card edge on, she could split it in half with a bullet. She hit dimes tossed into the air. She shot cigarettes from her husband's lips. I'm not sure I would want to be her husband if she, uh, if she did that. And she could snuff out the flame of a burning candle with a whizzing bullet. So kind of like Deborah, Annie Oakley was a woman who became a superstar in a male-dominated field. And there was a Broadway show written about Annie Oakley uh, in the early part of the 20th century called Annie Get Your Gun. One of the songs from that show is sung between Annie and and Frank Butler, uh, a fellow sharpshooter who in real life actually became her husband. In the song, Annie and Frank name different activities that they can do well, and it's always followed by the other person saying, I can do anything better than you. And so there's the proverbial battle of the sexes, where you have this man and this woman saying, I'm better than you are. I'm, you know, I'm not inferior to you. And it's been the subject of a lot of stories, a lot of arguments, and I'm sure a lot of divorces over the years. Uh, It's really pride and arrogance on display. And that's kind of what you would expect to see between Barak, the the male general, and Deborah, the, the female judge, the female leader. But that's the exact opposite of what happens in the passage. Um, To the contrary, Barak insists in verse 8 that the only way that he'll follow God's command to lead troops into battle is if Deborah is by his side. Instead of competing with her, he submits to her. And I've looked at four different commentaries to to, uh, prepare this sermon, and there's no agreement among the commentators on why Barak insisted, on, insisted rather, on Deborah's presence on this military campaign. Two of the commentators believe that Barak didn't fully believe God's word, as expressed through Deborah, and he was telling her essentially to put her money where her mouth was. And if you want me to put my life on the line, you're going to have to put yours on the line as well. 
But two of the commentators suggested that Barak respected the Lord and told Deborah to accompany him because he wanted to have a visible reminder of the Lord's presence uh, to go with him and with his soldiers. And we can't be certain of what Barak's motivation was. But I do think uh, that there was a consequence to his insistence that Deborah join him in battle. And we read uh, about that consequence in Deborah's response to Barak's request in verse 9. And she says, Surely I will go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Caesarea into the hand of a woman. We have to assume from the pronouncement of a consequence to Barak that the Lord was displeased with his initial lack of obedience. So why didn't Barak comply completely? Why did he put that condition on his obedience? Well, my guess is that it had something to do with those 900 chariots of iron uh, that the Canaanite general, uh, Caesarea, had it at his command. Those iron chariots were the tanks of their day. Think about that. All of Israel's soldiers were foot soldiers, and they had, they had bows and arrows, they had spears, they had clubs, um, but these chariots of iron could just plow right through a group of soldiers and mow them down uh, without uh, the charioteer getting hurt. The, the soldiers of Israel would have been woefully outclassed by these weapons. They wouldn't stand a chance. And so the Barak we meet in chapter 4 is a general who is not so secure in his mission and is not so faithful in God's promise to defeat uh, Sisera as he should have been, even with the promise that God would guarantee the outcome of the battle. God says through Deborah in verse 7 that he will give Sisera into Barak's hand. So God's promise is pretty clear, but it doesn't seem to assuage Barak's doubt. And even with Deborah's presence with him on Mount Tabor as they're waiting for Sisera and the Canaanite soldiers to arrive, Barak seems unwilling to take the initiative. It seems that Deborah has to prompt him to begin the offensive. In verse 14, it's Deborah who calls on him to begin the attack with another assurance that the Lord will act. She says, does not the Lord go before you? That's her rhetorical question. And God does indeed act. How does he act? We read in verse 15, And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. God invites us to obedience every day in numerous ways. He does that through the objective leading of his word in Scripture, but he also does it subjectively as the Holy Spirit writes God's word on our hearts. Are there ways that, like Barak, you've been putting conditions on your obedience to God, saying things like, uh, I'll obey only if I see this happen, or I'll obey only if you do this for me, Lord? What are some ways that the Lord might be calling you to repent of that conditional obedience, which is really disobedience. The sermon that uh, Pastor Kyle uh, was going to preach this morning at Liberty Main Line is from Psalm 143, and he and I were talking about uh, Psalm 143 on Friday. 
Psalm 143 is a psalm of David, and its context is that David is being oppressed by an enemy and is asking God for help. So David is in the midst of oppression, and what does he do? He, he remembers what God has done in history for his people, and he preaches the sermon of God's faithfulness in history to his own heart. Here's what he says. Uh, this is Psalm 143, verse 5. He says, I remember the days of old. I meditate uh, on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. So what he does is he, he reminds himself of how God has acted in the past. And that's exactly what you and I can do when, like, like David, like Barak, we're invited by the Lord to remember all that he has done for us and for all his people throughout history. And that testimony is meant to give us grace to believe that if God has delivered his people in the past, he's able to do it again. One final word before we leave Barak and move on to our final point, and that is, despite Barak's seeming unwillingness to trust God at first, God does hold him up as a picture of a faithful leader. Barak is named both in 1 Samuel 12 and Hebrews 11 as a man of great faith who trusted God and acted to deliver God's people. And what Barak's presence in, in those two other citations in Scripture tells me is that God does not demand perfect obedience from us. He knows very well the struggles that Barak had, and yet he still counted Barak's faith as worthy of commending to us as an example. So my question to you is, do you struggle with your faith? Do you struggle to believe that God is good or that he is good to you? or that he can help you, or that he even loves you. Don't let that struggle keep you from him. Barak's faith was in a God that he had never seen. But you and I have Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, who died for us and was vindicated by the Father and made alive again in order that you and I would believe that God is good and that he is for us and that all of his promises for us are as good as delivered because of Jesus. So don't let a struggle from faith keep you from reaching out to God and trusting him. So our third point, an unexpected ally. Why is Jael an unexpected ally? Well, if you look in verse 17, you'll see that Jael's husband, Heber, was the friend of Jabin, the king of whose army had been oppressing Israel for 20 years. So Heber and Jabin had at some point made a non-aggression pact where they decided to not go to war with each other and to support one another. And so when the Canaanite general Sisera flees the battle to save his life, where does he run? He runs to his friend Heber for protection. And there he finds Heber's wife, Jael. And this is one of the great ironies in the book of Judges. Not only that the wife of his friend would turn out to be his executioner, but that Sisera would be undone by a woman. We don't know exactly what human motivations led Jael to deceive and then kill Sisera, but we recall that Deborah prophesied back in verse 9 that due to Barak's reluctance to follow God's command, that God would sell Sisera into the hands of a woman, and that woman is Jael. 
But the double irony in Sisera's story is that Sisera evidently had a track record of sexually abusing uh, the women whose cities he conquered. We know this from Judges 5, which is Deborah's and Barak's song of victory, and it recounts the events of the battle and provides some, some color commentary on what happened. And in chapter 5, verse 30, Deborah and Barak muse as to what must be going on in uh, Sisera's mother's mind when she realizes that it's taking him so long to return home from the battle. And, and they say that these are her supposed thoughts. Quote, have they not found and divided the spoil, a womb or two for every man? And what a womb or two for every man means is uh, a crude way of saying that Sisera was known for capturing and sexually abusing women. And so the double irony for Sisera that he would uh, uh, meet his end at the hands of a woman is apt. More than that, though, Jael used a tent peg and a mallet to end Sisera's life. And the pastor and teacher Tim Keller points out that in the ancient Near East, it was traditionally women's work to set up and maintain the tents. And so uh, a woman would, would have as the tools of her trade tent pegs and mallets. She, she would be used to using them. And uh, so the triple irony for Sisera is that he's not only uh, betrayed by a friend and killed by a woman, but that she uses uh, the tools of her womanly trade uh, to end his life. And it's a fitting end, seemingly, for a man who despised women. So in conclusion, what can we take away from the account of Deborah? Despite all the twists and turns in the story, I think that the story of Deborah is one of God's covenant love and faithfulness to his people. And, and you might be saying, Tim, where, where do you get that from? Where do you see covenant love played out in this book? It, it's just kind of a gory war story. But as a matter of fact, God's covenant love and faithfulness is a theme that is stretched throughout the book of Judges. That even though God's people rejected him, he loved them and sent someone, in this case, a team of people, to deliver God's covenant uh, people from danger and oppression is proof of his covenant love. And we use that term frequently uh, here at Liberty. What, what is a covenant? A covenant is a really serious promise. It, it's, it's a promise that there's skin behind, that we don't easily turn away from. Other kinds of covenants are, are marriage. Um, and so that, that's the love and the faithfulness with which God loves us. We continue to see that covenant faithfulness and love, and, and grace is what the Bible calls it, continue to this very day. Because in the fullness of time, God sent his son, Jesus, to simultaneously be the ultimate judge, the ultimate Deborah, and the one who was judged in our place. But unlike Deborah, the freedom that Jesus brought didn't last just a generation or two. It's everlasting. And unlike Deborah, Jesus lives again and reigns over everything that is. And so when we feel harassed and helpless, he invites us to look to him and find our hope and our deliverer. Let's pray.
Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the story of Deborah. We thank you, Lord, for the ways in which uh, you show us your love and your glory uh, through the work that she did in history. And Lord, I pray that we would believe with faith that you are a good and faithful God who loves us and who does not withhold anything good from us, uh, because that is your nature. So, Lord, I I know that many of us struggle to believe that today. I I know that many of us struggle to believe that you are able and willing to love us, to meet us where we are, to receive us as sinful, imperfect people, and yet to demonstrate your love to us. Uh, So, Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to do that, even through uh, the examples that we see in this story. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.